Well, good to see you all tonight. Trust you're having a good week. How you feeling, Dale? Still shaky. Well, I kept you on the prayer list. Yeah, okay. Well, you're here. That's good. It's good to see you tonight. Uh, okay, well, we are in Ephesians tonight. We continue to be in Ephesians for a few more weeks here. And uh, we're in chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. The unity of the church is what I've entitled the message here. And let me lead us in prayer, and then we'll get started here as far as our study. <clears throat> Lord, again, we do thank you for the privilege to assemble. Thank you for each one that's able to come out tonight. And pray that our fellowship would be sweet, and you would guide us in our, our study, our prayer time. Again, we thank you for the bond that we have in Jesus Christ as fellow believers. And, and uh, just thank you for your presence. May you minister to each heart here tonight. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, well, we have noted that the theme of Ephesians is the church, the universal church, and uh, we will see that again tonight here. Uh, Just a couple of introductory slides here. A summary of what we've looked at in chapters 1 through 3. Chapter 1, God's grand plan of salvation summarized in a prayer for enlightenment. And so that sets the tone. But then uh, chapter 2, he's building on this individual salvation, but also one new man. Yeah, it starts out in individual emphasis, but then he's thinking in terms of of the body of Christ, the one new man. Chapter 3, revelation of this church truth, and that God is to be glorified in the church. One more uh, slide here in chapters 1 through 3. There were two prayers for God's people, the church, for enlightenment, as we saw in 1, 1, 15 through 23, and then also for enablement at the end of chapter 3. Now as you move into the practical section of the book, Chapters 4 through 6, Paul is going to exhort the believers to put into practice what he has prayed for and what is in keeping with their position. Our position, established in chapters 1 through 3, is to be matched by our practice, as brought out in chapters 4 through 6. This is Paul's pattern. He often lays down a, a doctrinal foundation first and then builds practice upon the doctrine. That's why we always say doctrine is very important. Some people just want to get to the practice application. They don't want to talk about doctrine. Not Paul. First lays down doctrine and then builds on that. Well, we saw here a tremendous emphasis in chapter 3 there at the end. Uh, His prayer for them is that they would be strengthened in the inner man. He's praying that they'd be grounded in love, that they would know the love of Christ and be filled with the fullness of God. Uh, What an awesome prayer. And uh, And then he concludes there by saying in verse 20 that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. And uh, he's really praying all of this to the end that God would be glorified, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Well, how is God glorified in his church? Well, he puts himself on display through his people. Uh, That's what it's really all about. The church is a God-filled people, and we are to put God on display uh, through his love. That's a a key uh, emphasis there, as we have already noted. But how does love demonstrate itself? Well, one very prominent way is in the unity of God's people. So it's kind of amazing when we can get along. You know, it's nice when we can get along, isn't it? One person thinks so. The rest of you are not sure yet, but you no, know, amen. It is. It's great. We get along. It's a blessing. How, how wonderful when there's sweet fellowship uh, amongst the, the family of God. 
All right. Well, that brings us to where we're at uh, right now. And let's pick it up. Somebody want to read verse one, chapter four, verse one. Who wants to read that for us? Anita. Okay, so uh, he's transitioning here when he says, I therefore, uh, he's transitioning from uh, mainly doctrinal emphasis to now duty or from uh, position to practice. Uh, There's a transition going on. By the way, this is the sixth of eight long sentences in the book. Uh, And this long sentence consists of our whole study tonight, uh, chapter uh, four, verse one through verse six. So uh, Paul specializes in long sentences in this book. But he says here, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord. Now, uh, he's emphasizing this in the letter. He said it also in chapter 3, verse 1. And now he repeats it again, that he's the the prisoner of the Lord. I think he's uh, in a position of humility as uh, as the prisoner of the Lord. And uh, so he says, in that position, he says, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Uh, beseech is the idea of urge uh, or earnestly entreating. And he wants them to walk worthy. He's, he's urging them to walk worthy uh, of the calling with which you were called. Um, now he's prayed for enlightenment, enablement, and now he exhorts them to apply it. He's talking about their conduct, uh, that they would walk worthy. That's the idea of a lifestyle, a, a worthy lifestyle, how you conduct yourself in your, in your daily life. By the way, I like that Paul emphasizes it's a walk. Uh, it's not a sit. <laughs> it's not a sprint, right? It's a walk. Now, if you're walking, you're making progress. Uh, it's steady. You know, you walk steady, steady progress. I like Warren Wiersbe used to say, blessed are the plotters. You know, we, we plot on, don't we? I mean, it's a walk. It's a walk. And a worthy walk is a consistent walk. It's consistent with our calling uh, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Well, what is our calling? <clears throat> Salvation. Yeah, that's a given. But in context, what is he talking about? What is our calling as, as God's people? In what context? Well, in this context. In this context, unity, love. Right, as as a body of believers. Yeah. yeah. So I think that's what he's saying. Uh, he wants them to depict the unity that is established in Jesus Christ. And so, yes, union with Christ—that is our calling—but also uh, union with each other. The whole previous context emphasized the oneness that we now have in Jesus Christ. And so I think that's what his emphasis here is. Um, note my next, uh, my next slide here. With the goal of walking worthy in light of our calling to oneness in Christ, Paul now emphasizes four attitudes or four graces that are to characterize our walk that will facilitate practical unity in Christ. If we are really going to live out Christian unity... Uh, these have to be in place in our practical walk. So, okay, he wants us to walk worthy. That relates to the, the oneness, the union that we have in Jesus Christ. And now he's going to tell us how to do this, right? Okay, uh, any input before we get to uh, verses 2 and 3? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, sure. I think it's so neat that, uh, you know, Paul, after spending 
chapters of sound doctrinal statements. You know, and then when it comes to the practical aspect, the first thing that he addresses is, is the church, you know, mm -hmm. and the unity of the church. Right. Uh, uh, how important that is, right? Yeah. And last, you know, you think about, well, marriage is important, the husband and wife relationship is important, the children are important, but he begins with the church. That's a great point. Yeah, you know, so. <laughs> that is a great point. And, uh, you know, we talk about the institutions that God has ordained and which ones are going to last forever. Yeah. You know, well, the church, right? I mean, no marriage in heaven, praise the Lord for marriage, but it's not going to be like it is here. Uh, but the church is going to be, you know, so it's an eternal union there. So, yeah, that's a great point. Okay, uh, let's have somebody read verses 2 and 3. Who wants to read 2 and 3 for us? Yeah, Terry? With all humility and meekness, with patience, bearing one another in love, being eager to guard the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Okay, so here's what it means to walk worthy. Here's what it looks like. And he starts there, uh, my translation says, with all lowliness, you said humility, right, Terry? Yeah, which is the idea. Uh, all lowliness is, is uh, humility, uh, emphasis on that. And it's uh, appropriate that it's mentioned first. It's mentioned first, starts with humility. It's like a prerequisite to biblical unity is that we be humble, be humble. God gives grace to the humble, but he resists the proud. And I think pride leads to nothing but, uh, you know, factions and disputes and, and me first type stuff. Uh, but emphasis here, a, a worthy walk begins with, you, with humility. And what says in my translation, all lowliness, that, that's the idea of the highest degree, treat, uh, a stress there. And uh, when people are humble, it's, uh, it's all about God. It's not about them. It's not about their personal agenda. It's about, it's about what God's doing. By the way, uh, we think about uh, I being in the center of sin, right? S-I-N. We think about I being in the center of pride. Um, that fits. Eyes right in the middle there. With all uh, humility, with all lowliness. I heard this story about this guy that was such a humble guy in the church. And so they wanted to honor him. And so they gave him a little necklace that said, uh, humble on it. But then the next Sunday, they had to take it away from him because he wore it. <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, it should be in our practice, but you really don't need to draw attention to it. You know, that's kind of defeating the whole thing. So with all lowliness, all humility and gentleness. We got, we got two sets of twins in this verse. Uh, all lowliness and gentleness goes together. Sometimes this is translated as meekness. Uh, it's the idea of uh, controlled strength. Uh, it's the idea of submissiveness. It's part of the fruit of the spirit. Uh, it's the idea of being uh, gentle and, and, and gracious uh, with humility and, and gentleness. And then, uh, with long-suffering uh, and bearing with one another in love. Here's the other sets of twins. Long-suffering and bearing with one another. Um, long-suffering is the idea of, of long-tempered. Long-tempered. Uh, it's the idea of being patient. Uh, or, are you ready for this? Tolerant of uh, aggravating people. Tolerant of aggravating people. Uh, you know, there's a, in long suffering, there, there's a, a lot of putting up with people, 
Uh, that's long suffering. You're suffering long. It's like, man, I'm suffering putting up with that person. <laughs> and you suffer long. Uh, that's really the idea. It's the idea of when you're wronged, you, you take it. You know, we like to, the flesh wants to dish it out. And, and there's a place for, you know, what is right is right. There's no question about that. But uh, there's a spirit of things here uh, where I'm not just, uh, you know, I'm not just lashing out at somebody who is wronging me or bothering me. I'm, I'm, I'm patient. I'm patient. Um, and then bearing with one another in love. It's the idea of forbearance uh, with an attitude of love that seeks the other person's highest good. I'm, I'm thinking about the, uh, their highest good. And so, again, it's the idea of to put up with them, uh, uh, being uh, tolerant and enduring uh, their idiosyncrasies, their weaknesses, things that, things that bother you. Um, and, uh, again, all four of these graces are, I think, the outflow of God's love in, in our life that Paul was praying about at the end of chapter 3. Um, let's see here. There is certainly a place for confrontation, certainly is. And however, a loving spirit will carefully weigh when to call someone on the carpet and when to tolerate. Walking worthy involves a lot of toleration in the body of Christ. Uh, God brings certain people into our lives who require a lot of toleration simply because he wants us to learn to love them and thereby bring glory to himself as we learn to forbear in love. We all need to make allowances for diversity in thinking, failures, faults, background, disposition, Training, abilities, temperament, maturity, etc. And so, you know, uh, you think about Christ's likeness. We are to be like Christ. How much does Christ put up with about me? I mean, uh, there's a lot of things here that he's working on. And, uh, you know, so that, that's a great uh, way to measure. What does God want me to do here? Uh, what does Christ's likeness look like? Well, it looks like humility, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another in love. All right. Any other thoughts before we move on here? Okay. All right. Let's uh, go on to verse 3 then. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, you know how in the King James it says in 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show yourself approved unto, unto God. It's the idea of being diligent. That's the same word here. Endeavoring. Uh, be diligent to keep the unity of the spirit. The idea is to be to be zealously determined. Uh, it involves effort. Uh, we have to work at it. Um, now there is a positional unity that we have in in Christ, and he's saying endeavor to keep it. Endeavoring to keep the unity. He doesn't say to make it. It's already established. It's our position that he's laid down earlier. The oneness, the, the new man, the union that we have as believers in Christ. But endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. Um, it's already established. That's John 17, Christ's high priestly prayer. It's what we saw in Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, we're not to create it, but we are to preserve it. Preserve it. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. And this is the key idea. The unity of the spirit is the key idea here in this context. And uh, it emphasizes, again, our spiritual oneness, our spiritual union. And our practice is to reflect that. And we have to work at that. We have to work at that. How, how do you work at it? Well, be humble, gentle, put up with people, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. That's how you endeavor to keep the unity. 
uh, and it's not always easy. But endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Uh, Peace and unity go together. Um, We are no longer at war because Christ is our peace. Note the connection between oneness and peace in Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. It is this peace that binds us together as one. So peace and unity go together. Unity is the spiritual reality. Peace is to be the atmosphere of the church in which God, the author of peace, can put himself on display in the church. So there you go. Unity is the the spiritual reality, endeavoring to keep it, you know. But uh, peace that flows out of that is the atmosphere of the church. How wonderful it is when uh, brethren can dwell together in unity. And uh, we have this good rule of thumb, and essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things love. It's an old saying that goes back to the the church fathers uh, from way back. Okay, well, that brings us now to uh, seven unities that we find, seven spiritual unities that we find in verses 4 through 6. Note these uh, introductory statements. After calling the church to preserve the unity practically in accordance with what they already have positionally in Christ, Paul now elaborates on seven specific spiritual unities that bind them together as the church in view as a sevenfold oneness. And I do think they all go together. I think they're, they're all spiritual. And uh, there are seven spiritual unities uh, that bind us together. Note that these seven unities are all spiritual in nature, although they have ramifications to the outworking of practical body life. These seven unities are a further elaboration of the unity of the Spirit, mentioned in verse 3. Note also that these seven unities are all absolutes. Uh, these seven unities... Uh, absolutely apply to every member in the body of Christ. This becomes important, especially when we consider the issue of one baptism in verse 5. So uh, note that they're spiritual, they're absolutes, at least in my thinking. And so uh, uh, note the background there. All right, somebody want to read uh, verses 4 through 6 for us? Yeah, John? Okay, thank you. So uh, there's, a, there's a major emphasis uh, from chapter 2, verse 11 on, concerning the body. The one body that we as believers are all a part of. This is that idea of the universal church, uh, this, this, one, this one body. And every believer is a part of it. The church began on the day of Pentecost. God began a brand new thing. And it will be completed at the rapture. Uh, a forever family, Jew and Gentile, uh, one, one body. And so uh, Christ said, I will build my church. He's still building his church. And uh, that's the universal church. That's the one body. There's one body. There's not two bodies. There's not a Jewish body and a Gentile body. You know, uh, hyper dispensationalism kind of taught that. You had a Jewish church first. And then there was kind of a Gentile church. I guess they eventually merged. But really, uh, I don't see that. There's one body. There's always been just one body. Now, there was a progressive uh, state of things as far as the gospel went first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. But one body. Uh, There's one body and one spirit. Now, it's interesting here as you look at verse uh, 4, 5, and 6. 4 puts the emphasis on the spirit. Uh, 
verse 5, we believe, puts the emphasis on Jesus the Lord, and then verse 6 on God the Father. So there's kind of a, a Trinitarian emphasis here uh, as far as the flow of things here. But note, uh, one body, one spirit. Um, all believers have the same Holy Spirit. He is the one who connects us all together. It was the spirit that unified the church on the day of Pentecost. And it, it was the spirit who unified the Gentiles into that body as the gospel went forth to them. Uh, the spirit is the seal, the guarantee, the pledge or, or engagement ring, so to speak, concerning the church who is the bride of Christ. It is through the spirit that all believers have access to God. It is in the spirit that all believers are being made into a holy temple of God. There's just one Holy Spirit, and all believers share in him in common. The Holy Spirit lives in us individually, but the church corporately is said to be the temple of God as well. So uh, note that emphasis on the, the one spirit. And then also uh, there are three key traits that divine this uh, one true spirit of God. Love, which is listed first as the fruit of the spirit. Spirit of holiness, as he's called in Romans chapter 1. And the spirit of truth, as Christ repeatedly referred to him in John. So uh, love, holiness, and truth. These are key uh, traits related to the one spirit that we all share in, in common. And so he says here, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One hope of your calling. So again, he's combining something here. Hope is what? What is the idea of hope? You have a hope-so hope or a no-so hope? Yeah, you got a no-so hope. Uh, hope in the New Testament speaks of certainty. Certainty about what? Things to come based on Scripture, the promise of God. Yeah, what God has promised will be fulfilled. That's the idea of hope in the New Testament. It's a certain expectation of what God has promised. So, But here he's combining this hope with our calling. And again, uh, what is our calling in the context uh, that he's talking about here? What's the emphasis of our calling as we've already noted? It's our unity. It's our, our oneness that we have in Jesus Christ. Now, positionally, we have perfect unity. I mean, in Christ, we are one. We have noted that strongly. Uh, Christ's high priestly prayer, again, John chapter 17. But how about functionally? You think we're uh, everything we should be all the time, practically, functionally? No. Well, we got a lot. We got a ways to go. Sometimes one of us will get out of out of order. It happened three years ago. You know, it happens uh, regularly, right? So uh, the idea here, I think, is the hope of your calling is that one day we will have perfect unity when we are all together with the Lord. And uh, it's not going to happen until we're glorified. So I think this ultimately has glorification. Uh, the hope of our calling is that one day we will live in perfect harmony, in perfect unity, in practical reality in the presence of the Lord. You know, when we get to heaven, everybody's going to get along. There won't be any gossip, nobody running down anybody else. There won't be a fight. won't be a fist fight on Golden Avenue. won't break out there. And so uh, what are we looking for? Well, we're looking for the blessed hope. What is it? The glorious appearing of the great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's going to happen in conjunction with that? Well, Paul also says this in 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first. We're going to see him again. And in fact, they're going to have a, a prominent position. They're going to rise first. But don't 
worry, don't fret. We're not going to be far behind them. Uh, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. Uh, so there's an emphasis on together with them. We're all going to be together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we will always be with the Lord. Um, you know what a, what, a, what a fellowship that's going to be. Then the church is going to be exactly what God intended from the very beginning in terms of the union, the unity that we will have in Jesus Christ. This is the hope of our calling. This is the ultimate, uh, the ultimate that God intends for the church of Jesus Christ. You know that little saying, right? Oh, to live above with saints we love, that will be glory, right? But to live below with saints we know, now that's another story. <laughs> There's a little bit of truth in that, isn't there? But this looks forward to to live above with saints we love. That will be glory. It's going to be glory all the time. I, I you know, can't imagine what that would be like uh, in a glorified body and glorified form, and and all of us in that condition uh, with no problems, no baggage. Say, so, you know, brother, I still remember back there when you did that. No, 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 none of that stuff. I, I can't imagine what it's going to be. I think about this sometime, like on my deathbed. What's going to matter? I think all that stuff is going to kind of fade. It's like, yeah, that's not going to matter right now. <laughs> Mattered a lot back there, but it's not going to matter when we get to glory. Uh, in one hope of your calling, our calling relates in context here to our, the oneness that we have, the unity that we have in Jesus Christ. All right. Uh, any other thoughts? Okay. I will not say my dumb joke at this point, which is it? you I must. Oh, yeah? Oh, no, no, no. no. <laughs> you haven't exhausted me yet. <laughs> I've got plenty of my own dad jokes here. But... Anyway, uh, okay, let's uh, continue on here. Verse 5. Uh, one body, as we see in verse 4, one spirit, one hope of your calling. And then he says, one Lord. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Uh, one Lord is uh, the idea of master. Lord is master. Uh, master uh, with the idea of, of sovereign authority. Uh, Jesus is our Lord. And uh, the idea of, of being our Lord is that our allegiance is to him. We bow before him. We recognize him as, as our master, as, as our sovereign authority. And uh, again, I believe this is true of all believers Notice what he's saying uh, of all believers endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit. But then he says in verse four, one body, one spirit, one hope of your calling, one Lord. We all share in, in this reality. He is our Lord. It's, it's one of the unities that we all have in the faith. Um, note this pattern. I know you, those of you in the front will can appreciate it anyway. I'm not going to read it all. But in Romans, you have this pattern of Paul emphasizing our Lord right from the very beginning. Romans 1, 3, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. 4, 24, who raised Jesus, our Lord. Uh, Romans 5, 1, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord. All the way through Romans. In fact, it's interesting in the New Testament that we never find that Jesus is the Savior of all believers. But the Lord of a few. It's never found. He's always the Lord of all. Uh, I mean, to, to accept Christ is to accept him as Savior and Lord. 
you recognize him for who he is. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Should, should probably settle it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, etc., etc., etc. There's one Lord. One Lord. It's, it's true. All of us believers uh, know this reality. It's a reality for all of us. We all have one Lord. One faith. Now, one faith. Now, there's a little debate here. When he says one faith, is this referring to the, the body of truth that we call the faith? Like Paul or like Jude uh, says, uh, earnestly contend for the faith. You know, is it that idea uh, of a subjective or a, rather an objective body of, uh, of, the, of the faith, one faith? And it's true. We all do have the, the same faith. We hold to the same scriptures. We hold to the same gospel, the same uh, body of truth. But I think in context here, it's more likely uh, talking uh, subjectively that we all have the same personal faith. We all, we all share uh, the same faith, and it's a personal faith in Jesus Christ. Note a, a couple of references here. Titus 1.4, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. There's the idea. We all share in the, in the same common faith. Second Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Simon Peter, a bond servant of, and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained what? Like precious faith. That's what we have. Uh, like precious faith. We have a common faith. I think that's what's in view here when he says one faith. Now, uh, let me elaborate just a little bit. True believers have uh, their faith in Jesus alone, and it is real in their hearts. True believers realize the truth of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. They're not trusting in their works, but solely in Jesus Christ as their means to heaven. Uh, this is absolutely critical. Uh, we all have this faith that rests in Christ alone. Saving faith is 100% in Jesus alone. Jesus plus works, Jesus plus ritual, Jesus plus anything else is not saving faith. Faith in Jesus alone is saving faith. All true believers share in, in a unity of the same saving faith. There, there is a unity of one faith. So I think <clears throat> when we boil it down... As believers, we all share the same faith, uh, the same nature of saving faith. Um, i got one more slide here. Note this, Romans 4, 4 and 5. To him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. In other words, if you think you're working your way, you're not going by grace. You haven't understood grace. But he says something very interesting here in verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes... On him who justifies the ungodly. This person's faith. His faith is accounted for righteousness. Who's the one who is really saved? Well, the person who is not working, but rather is, is understanding is by grace. And I'm believing on him. I'm believing on Jesus Christ as my savior uh, to get me to heaven. So uh, one faith. We all share in this same faith as, as believers. It's one reason we ask people like, um, like, what do you, what do you think you have to do to get to heaven? Well, I think I have to do something. I got to get baptized. I got to go to church. I got to be whatever. Uh, unless you understand, no, it's by believing in Christ. It's not by my works. It's by Christ's work, his finished work. That's where my faith is at. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Okay. We come to the most difficult one in the whole bunch here, right? One baptism. What kind of baptism are we talking about, do you suppose? Uh, what's that? Spiritual. Well, that's a... Thank you. <laughs> I surely don't think we're talking about water baptism. And, and I'll tell you why as we go along here. 
But uh, <clears throat> I think we're talking seven spiritual unities here. This, this flows together. But let me uh, just kind of work through the progression of things here with you. I've got several slides here. Unquestionably, this is from uh, Charles Ryrie in his book, Basic Theology. Unquestionably, baptism was a clear proof in New Testament times of conversion, whether it be conversion to Judaism, John the Baptist message, or to Christianity. To refuse to be baptized raised a legitimate doubt as to the sincerity of the profession. So we don't want to downplay the importance of baptism in the New Testament. Uh, If somebody says, well, I'm a believer, but I refuse to be baptized, that's something wrong with that. There's something wrong with the profession. Uh, as far as what we see in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 1.13, Paul says to the Corinthians, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? It was a given uh, that they were baptized, that they identified with Christ. He didn't say, uh, how many of you have been baptized? No, no, he's, he's, it's a given uh, in Paul's mind that they've been baptized. So it's expected that if you're a believer, uh, you would be baptized. However, let me insert here that Paul in the same passage, I mean, just a few verses later, makes a clear distinction between the gospel and baptism. He goes on to say in verse 17, uh, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach a gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So he makes a clear distinction between baptism and the gospel. All that to say that baptism is not the gospel. It's not a part of the gospel. People are saved, uh, not saved by baptism. They are saved by believing the gospel, right? Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It's the power of God and salvation. Everyone who believes the gospel is the message you believe. Once they believe, then they are to get baptized. Saving faith comes first, then baptism. That is why we practice believers' baptism as the New Testament teaches. So uh, we're making those distinctions there. Um... However, I don't think Ephesians 4, 5 is talking about water baptism. All the other unities in view are spiritual, right? Should we work our way through that? Uh, one body, I think he's talking about the, the universal church, the, the body of believers, a spiritual reality. Yeah, there's a physical reality there too related to uh, the persons, but he's talking about uh, the reality of the body of Christ, a universal church. <clears throat> and then uh, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, One faith, and now we come to one baptism. So I think there's a spiritual emphasis all the way through here. And they're absolute. Water baptism is a physical reality. It's not absolute. What I mean by it, uh, that is not being absolute, is this. Uh, For whatever reason, not absolutely all believers get baptized in water. I myself have led people to a saving faith on their deathbed. Uh, They were so weak, uh, there was no way we could uh, immerse them. uh, Baptism means to immerse with the idea of identification. If they truly believed the gospel, then they were saved. And so, um, you know, I, I definitely am not making baptism a condition for salvation when I, when I talk to people on their deathbed, when they can't even get out of bed. Um, so, uh, yeah, that would seem to be consistent. And it's also consistent with the gospel of John. We should note that John's gospel of belief never addresses New Testament church baptism. Uh, And yet it is uh, the gospel written with the express purpose of telling us how to believe or how to be saved. It's the gospel of belief. Uh, If a person truly believes, then all the spiritual unities apply to them, including baptism of Ephesians 4 or 5. This is speaking, if this is speaking of water baptism, then the unity theme here is broken. 
because not all believers are baptized in water. My conclusion is that water baptism is not in view. And then uh, this thought, the, the best view, in my opinion, is that this refers to baptism into Christ, as seen in the parallel of Romans 6, as taught by Paul in Romans 6, that is identification with Christ in his death and resurrection at the moment of saving faith. A tremendous emphasis in Ephesians has been that as believers we are now in Christ. We find our identification in our union with him. The parallel thought, as I say, is in Romans 6. Uh, Harold Honer, to round out this. Uh, this inward reality is too often missed. It serves as the basis of the outward ritual. Hence, the one baptism most likely refers to the internal reality of having been baptized into, identified with the one Lord by means of the one faith mentioned in this verse. And I think that makes, that makes good sense. All right, any other thoughts before we round out verse 6 here? Yeah. I have a, a, a question. Yeah, okay. Right. Mm-hmm. And one spirit. Right. The idea of one body is already established the, the, the unity of the believer in the spirit, mm-hmm. in Christ, right? And then goes on to the spirit. And so he goes on to say, I'm asking, that uh, the baptism refers to a spiritual baptism, an in Christ baptism. It seems to be that there will be a repetition, a redundancy in the statement, because when he says there is one body, you know, the way there is, the way that we are in one body, and he says it right after, one spirit. And so, just thinking. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't say that there's not overlap here in some of the things that are being mentioned here. But uh, I do think as far as, um, you know, we get into some technicalities here. Because if you, if you recall there, I didn't say that this was exactly spirit baptism. Uh, you know, there's overlap there. But the emphasis is on being baptized into Christ, as we find in, in Romans chapter 6. And uh, let me see if I can go back there. Uh, this was actually in my notes when I put my commentary together in Ephesians. The first one was 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. By one spirit, you all been baptized into one body. This uh, emphasis here is baptism into Christ is found in Romans 6, 3, and 5, which I don't see as a water thing either. Uh, I see it as an identification with Christ in his burial or yeah, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection. So again, there's some overlap there, but there's some fine distinctions yet too. You see what I'm saying? I, I see what you're saying. Yeah. yeah so yeah, what I was thinking, you know, the idea of, of the unity of the body being in one baptism, spiritual baptism, being one in Christ. I, I thought, well, that's already established in the verse four. He's already said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so why would he repeat that in verse six? Well, yeah, right. And to pick up on Honer, it kind of seems to go along with, uh, you know, one Lord. Well, when do we have one Lord? Well, in our one faith. And at that moment, we're identified with Christ in terms of what he's done for us in his death, burial, and resurrection. So, um, yeah, uh, there's overlap here. Um, If you go elsewhere, where does that take you? Uh, Well, that's my problem. If I'm going to say this is water baptism, which I think there is an emphasis on all believers being baptized in the New Testament. Don't see unbaptized believers, right? You say, what about the thief on the cross? That's pre-church, right? In the church age, we really don't see 
unbaptized believers. So there is a unity in the sense that, yeah, the expectation is that you will engage in, in, in water baptism. But again, I think the flow of the thing here is uh, spiritual unities that we all have in Christ. That's why I'm leaning towards not 1 Corinthians 12, 13 exactly, but closely related to we uh, have been baptized into Christ, uh, in, which is a little different emphasis than spirit baptism in 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. But anyway, yeah, get into some fine stuff here. Yeah. All right. Anything else? I'm just hesitant to make this water baptism. Uh, I think that leads to other problems, um, such as uh, the Church of Christ wants to make. You know, like um, it's part. You know, it's it's so closely tied to your salvation that you're not saved if it doesn't happen to you. You know, which is what the Church of Christ would say. So I'm not wanting to do that. I have a question here. Uh huh. Couldn't this just be a recap of what he's already said? I think there's a lot of overlap, like what you were saying, Vince, uh, where he talks about earlier one body. Well, if I was to list this in logical order, I'd probably start with uh, one Lord first or one faith first, uh, you know, because that, that then everything else follows behind it. So I don't know that there's a, you know, he's listing several things here that I think there's a lot of overlap is what I would say, Albert. There's overlap. Yeah. So... It just seems to me that it could, it could, it could be a recap of just everything right there. Yeah, uh, there is there is recap in the sense that it all ties together here. I mean, he's I, you know I think he's emphasizing he's unpacking in a sense uh, the union that we have in Jesus Christ these seven unities. So yeah. Okay, uh, one more. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Uh, we know from the scriptures very clearly, Old Testament and New Testament, there's one God and uh, the Father of all. As it's developed in the scriptures, uh, there's one God, but he's a triune God, even as seen in our baptismal formula, baptizing them in the name, singular, one uh, in the name, but of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, there's one God, but here he's emphasizing the Father, one God and Father of all. And the all here would be in context believers uh, who enjoy these seven unities. And the Father is uh, the ultimate in terms of the, the headship role that he has. One God and Father of all, who is above all. He's sovereign over all and through all. He works through all and he's in you all. He dwells in all. Uh, okay, we're back to Harold. He's getting his time tonight, isn't he? Uh, God is shown to live inside all of his children. Ephesians names each one of the members of the Godhead as indwelling believers. Uh, we see an emphasis on each one. Uh, the Holy Spirit is the seal, as we saw in chapter 1. Christ may, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, chapter 3, verse 17. And the Father of all in you all, as we see here in, in this verse. So, so there's an emphasis on all every member of the Trinity indwelling us in some sense. Uh, a prominent emphasis in Ephesians is that the church is a God-indwelt people. I think this is a huge thing. When you think about the church, what, what, what is it that's unique about the church? Well, God lives in us as his people. That's a, that's a huge emphasis. 
So seven uh, spiritual and absolute unities. Uh, one body, a single unified spiritual family. One spirit who indwells, connects us all. Uh, one hope, glorification. One Lord, Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. One faith, all have the same uh, truth and embrace the same saving faith. One baptism, all identify with Christ's death and resurrection. Um, that is certainly true spiritually, Romans chapter 6. But it is also true physically in our baptism, in our physical baptism. But I tend to think in light of the whole context here, the emphasis here on this one baptism is the, the Romans 6 spiritual emphasis. And then one father, we all have the same intimate relationship with the sovereign God. Well, conclusion of the whole matter, all of these unities apply to all of God's people, the church. If one of them doesn't apply to a person, then they're not saved. Um, I believe this applies to all of us. However, if they do apply, then we should live accordingly, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. All right. Any other thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Yeah. Okay. Right. Um, by one spirit are we all baptized into one body. That's 1 Corinthians twelve thirteen. I mean, at the moment of saving faith, a lot of things happen yeah. instantaneously. Yes. And one of those things is you receive the Holy Spirit who connects you to a whole body of believers. I think that's what it's talking about. Well, again, we're getting to technicalities. And, uh, you know, you go back. Uh, I should turn back there because I'm referring to uh, Romans all the time here. But in Romans, uh, let me turn there for just a moment. Uh, it's been a while since I taught through Romans. I might have to do Romans again sometime. Not tonight. Uh, in, in the past, when I look at some of the stuff, normally, normally, not always, right? But normally, when the word baptism is used without a qualifier, it has a reference to the normal understanding of baptism with the word baptism, the immersion. Again, that's not consistent all the time, but normally, you know, when you're talking about baptism of the Spirit, baptism of fire, uh, normally there is a qualifier uh, to the word baptism. Okay? When there is no qualifier, uh, it's understood, uh, for example, as water baptism. Uh, mm -hmm. Not, as a, not as, a, as a, you know, this is happens all the time. So yeah, I think you want to look at the context. That's the main driving thing, the context. And so back in Romans 6, where I'm talking about, it talks about um, verse 4 or verse 3, Romans 6, uh, 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into, into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we are buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So he's talking about an identification with Jesus Christ in his death. And, and I really think we get hung up. I think we tend to read water into baptism. And I would say strongly, all baptism means is, is the idea of identification ultimately. And, and here in Romans, the identification is with Jesus Christ in his death and his resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it's the identification with the Spirit and his work of placing us into the body of Christ. So again, it's a kind of a technicality here, but I think the emphasis related to the one Lord here in verse 5, where the emphasis seems to be on Jesus, would carry through to our identification with him in terms of his death and his resurrection. 
not been baptized with the Holy Ghost. You're right. So the first one was water, and that's more of the, right. said, the public showing of... Sure. And there's overlap. You know, if you're identifying with Christ in his death and his resurrection, uh, you're also, uh, the spirit is involved there. I mean, it's the work of the spirit to, to identify us with the Lord and with each other. So, I mean, there, there is overlap here. But again, I tend to think uh, that this emphasis here in verse 5 relates to the one Lord, the one faith, like Harold Honer said, and our identification uh, with him uh, related to what I would see is Romans 6. I would see Romans 6 as a parallel emphasis there. Okay, yeah, we could probably haggle over the, the fine points, but end up at the same point. But anyway, uh, all right, any other thoughts? Okay, let's share some prayer requests. Uh, need a prayer sheet, anyone? Thank you, Michael, for your ministry tonight. It wouldn't have been